All right, so uh, we're going to be looking at that uh, Genesis chapter 2 passage in here. Uh, this is a, yeah, a sermon, but it's also, as you all know, if you haven't been here uh, in a while, this is very interactive as well, so you are uh, allowed to jump in and ask questions as we go along. Uh, last week we started uh, chapter 2, and um, if you'll look at your outline today in the bulletin, I've given you all the points uh, from last week and the ones we're going to cover this week. This is part 2 today part two of what we started last week. Uh, we, we looked at what it means to be made in God's image. The Bible says that about humans, man, man and woman, made in the image of God. And chapter two gives us more detail about that. Uh, first, by reminding us that God set apart a day to be holy unto him. Remember that? The Sabbath day, which was also the first full day of human life. Uh, man and woman were made on day six. We learned that in chapter one. And then on day seven, the first full day of human life, God set it apart, made it holy, and called it the Sabbath, as if to invite people into his rest, to invite people into a relationship with him, which could be you know, based around this day that they get to spend with him. So we, we spoke about that. Uh, and then we also spoke about how people are set apart, sanctified, uh, which really gets to the issue of being made in the image. Uh, we saw in Genesis 2 that... God formed a man from the dust, and then he breathed into their nostrils the breath of life, which the breath is the Spirit. So it's the Holy Spirit that God breathed out to give mankind breath. And that was more than just the breath that animals have. Every creature has breath, right? Even in a sense, the trees do. They breathe in and out. They breathe actually opposite of us, right? So that trees are our friends because they give us what we need and we give back to them what they need. Everything breathes, but humans breathe in a special way, uh, and you might call it their soul, uh, an immortal soul. That, that's something that no other creature has. In fact, uh, the Bible doesn't even ever say that the angels, that, about the angels, that God breathed into their nostrils. It doesn't even use that word for angels. There's a special place that God has given humanity. Well, tonight, I want to show you those next three points. Uh, not only is there a holy day and holy people, but there's a holy place that God made, a holy covenant, and holy matrimony, uh, which is just a few really small things to cover in one session. We'll see if we can, uh, we'll see if we can, can accomplish it. Uh, first of all, there was the, ho the holy place. Did you notice what God did starting in verse 8? Uh, pretty cool. He planted a garden in the east and in a place called Eden. Uh, we don't know exactly where that place was, although uh, if you'll look at the names of the rivers that are listed in verses 10 through 13, you can kind of get some idea. Uh, the only couple of rivers that we actually know by name there today are, which ones? Tigris and Euphrates. Uh, where are those rivers at? Iran, Iraq, right? They kind of run through both of those countries, what was called the Fertile Crescent because um, the Euphrates and the Tigris make the shape of a crescent, the land that's in between the two rivers. Uh, so somewhere in that region, the Middle East, that's about all we know about this place called Eden. But God especially planted it, and it says that he took the man, look at verse 8, he took the man and put him in this place. The man that he had formed, the holy people, he took and he put them in this holy place. Uh, the whole description of the Garden of Eden, to me, it becomes clear. God is making a temple. 
The garden is a temple. And then later in the Bible, when God describes the temple, it really kind of harkens back to the garden. Let me give you a couple of examples. Uh, when Moses was told to make the tabernacle, and then later David was told to make the temple, um, remember they weren't supposed to make any pictures of God to worship. That was, a, that was the second commandment. And yet God commanded that the place would be full of pictures. But they weren't of God. I'll give you two guesses. What were the pictures supposed to be? Trees, flowers, pomegranates. Uh, there were angels. Yeah, there were, there were cherubim. Um, that's really important. Actually, there were two cherubim guarding the way to the Holy of Holies. Does that sound like anything from the Garden of Eden? Uh, where after, we'll read that in chapter 3, after mankind sinned, God put two cherubim, two warrior angels. Uh, cherubs aren't babies with wings that shoot arrows. Uh, you know, things like that. That's not what cherubs are. Cherubs in the Bible are warriors of light, actually. Uh, the word, uh, the seraphim and the cherubim are both warrior angels. And God placed those warriors with swords at the entrance to the gardens to show that man could never go back there without some kind of miracle. Well, in the temple, the way to the Holy Holies was guarded by two big cherubim. So all, all of that, when you walked into the temple or a tabernacle and you looked around and you saw the trees, uh, you saw the pomegranates, you saw you know, even the pillars that were made, they were to have open flower petals at the top and pomegranates all around the edges of the flower petal and there was gold everywhere, just like it says here, right? Uh, the, the rivers flowed around the garden and there was gold in the land and the gold was good and there was delium and onyx stone and actually all those stones are also found in the temple on the high priest's clothing. Um, it's not a subtle thing, actually. I'm not, I don't think I'm teaching you something that's like super secret decoder ring material. I think it's pretty obvious that when God gave the tabernacle plan to Moses, he was saying, hey, this is the Garden of Eden. This is the Garden of Eden, right? Uh, I'm bringing you back. I'm showing you what you were originally supposed to be, but you failed to be it. Here's the way back into my presence. Uh, if you were here for our Leviticus series that we did, when did we do that? In the summer. Uh, you probably heard a little bit of this stuff, um, and so it's a little bit maybe of a review for you. Um, but here we're talking about pre-sin. Remember that. This, this is the basic stuff. This is God created man, and it, it seems like as soon as he created man, he made sure there was a garden, and he took the man and he put him right in the middle of the garden. And then it uses two words about what the man was supposed to do in the garden. Can anybody find them? What was the job description of the man in two words in the garden? To work it and to keep it, or to develop it and to guard it. I'll give you two guesses. Where do you think those, who, about whom do you think those two words are used later in the Bible? Work and keep. Two guesses. Jesus? Yep. Priests, yes, exactly right. That is the number one two words used to describe what the priests were supposed to do in the temple. They were there to work it and to keep it. Again, not subtle, right? Uh, God is telling us through the tabernacle, the temple, through worship of the Old Testament, I am showing you the way back to what you were originally designed to be. But the question is, what were we originally designed to be? Priests to God. Every, listen, every human being was designed to be a priest of sorts. Before the Lord. 
What does that mean to you? I mean, what, what, do you, what do you think when you hear that? We were designed to be priests. What comes to your mind? Communicating? Yeah. Prayer, talking to God, having a relationship. What else? Yeah, what, just what comes to your mind when you hear, I was made to be a priest? What does that make you think of? Worship. Worship. What else? Representing. Representing God. Representing people to God, both ways, right? To proclaim his excellencies, yeah. You know, I think about holiness too, right? Uh, the priest in the Bible was sanctified, uh, set apart, special. Uh, belong to God. Everything that he did was meant to be completely holy, given over to God. Holy. And here it says that the first man was made in that same way. What the priests were later picked to do was really just a re recapitulation. It was just a redoing of what Adam was originally meant to do. Which is very significant when you get to Jesus, because Jesus is described as working and keeping his people, his sheep, and Jesus is also very much described as a priest, a high priest, in fact. Uh, he's the only priest that has ever redone what Adam was meant to do and did it right. Which is why in the New Testament, Jesus is called the second Adam or the last Adam. I, love the, I especially love that it says he's the last Adam. Because um, he, did, he did it so well that it doesn't have to be done again. And so... We, as God's people, as Christians, are in Christ, and, and we're called in the Bible priests. We're called a kingdom of priests. Uh, and that is, I believe, man and woman, all Christians, priests, because we are in the priest, the, the last Adam, the one who worked and kept God's place uh, in relationship with God perfectly. Uh, and so the, the, the idea of the, the garden, sometimes we jump straight to this idea that, okay, well, Adam was given a job to do. Because God planted a garden, put him in it, and said, work it. And so we think, all right, man was a farmer. We were meant to be farmers. And that's actually just a small bit of what this is actually about. I think it's about so much more than that. Um, now, it is dignifying to work. Like, it dignifies human work, this, this chapter. Um, in what way? Well, number one, God in this chapter is a worker. God himself. Remember in the first chapter, he was king. He just said, let there be, and boom, there was. And let there be, and boom, there was. And it's like he didn't break a sweat to make the world, which he didn't. But here in chapter 2, it's describing God as if he's a human being. And he got down and stooped and got his hands dirty, literally. He got his hands down into the dust, formed a man out of dust, and then blew the breath of his spirit right into the nostrils of the man, you know. So, so this, was, this is a working God, which dignifies work. But not only that, God created a man in his image to work just like he works. So this is dignifying to work, but it dignifies work by connecting our work to our priestly calling. Remember I, I said, I think I said this last week, humanity was not made for work. We were made to work for God. Y'all got that? We were not made for work. We were made to work for God. The prepositions mean everything, right? Human life is not all and only about work. 
interestingly, uh, in a lot of ancient Near Eastern creation stories, that was what humans were for. Um, there's a famous uh, Babylonian creation story called the Enuma Elish. Uh, it was, was written around the same time Moses lived. It's around the same time this was written. And in that story, the gods were too tired of working on the world, and so they made man to do their work for them. That was the story behind it, you know, like almost like God made humanity to be their slaves. The gods did. How different is this? A lot different. Where the work is not the primary thing about their life. God's the primary thing. Work is just one of those many things that mankind is called to do for God. And so the garden doesn't just represent, okay, the dignity of work. It represents the dignity of work in relationship to the God who gave that work to us. There's another Greek story, a Greek myth. Have you ever heard of Pandora's box? It's a famous Greek myth where Pandora opened, there's this box that the gods gave. It was full of all the bad things of the world, but it but the God had uh, enclosed it into a box so it wouldn't get out. And then Pandora was so curious that it, he, was it he or she? can't remember. Uh, opened the box and all the bad things of the world came streaming out. And that's how the world got bad according to the uh, Greek myth. And one of the things that came out of Pandora's box was work. Sometimes it feels that way, doesn't it? You know, that work is one of the evil things that somehow crept into the world. And man, we got to work, but we hate work and work is torture. Uh, this tells us, no, work, because we know how to see it as a part of our priestly service to God, work has meaning. Work has dignity. Uh, not, not just if it's spiritual work, right? The only work that matters is not the work of a pastor or a missionary. or That's not the only work that matters. All work matters. Adam and Eve were farmers for the glory of God. Every work matters, but it matters because it serves the Lord and his glory. Not just simply because we're made to work as if we're slaves. Does that make sense? Um, again, this whole chapter is all about the sanctity of human life. It's about the dignity that human beings have given to them from their creator. And the fact that God made a holy place, very much like a temple, and he placed the first human beings in the middle of it, and he said, here's an assignment to do for me. reminds us of what we were made for and what Jesus Christ came into the world. Remember, he's, our, he's the temple. He's the way that we return back to the calling of the garden. And so through Jesus, our work too is given back to us, redeemed, with a new perspective, with a new reason for doing it. Uh, one more thing about the holy place. Did you notice uh, there were two trees in the middle of the garden? There were lots of trees in the garden. Verse 9, he calls to spring up every tree that is pleasant for the sight and good for food. But there were two trees, especially in the midst. What were they? Tree of life, tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Uh, you might say, good tree, bad tree. <laughs> the tree they were supposed to eat of, the tree that they were not supposed to eat of. Remember, that was the, the probation sort of that they were in. Um, this is an indication that the, the Garden of Eden wasn't just about physical help, right? God gave them all the plants in the garden to eat, but it wasn't just about physical. He put in the very middle of the garden two almost like sacramental trees. 
Um, these were sort of symbolic trees. Uh, the one symbolized disobedience to God, the other symbolized obedience. And as they ate the one that symbolized obedience, they were supposed to receive from God the pledge of everlasting life and everlasting glory that he had made to them. They were to receive assurance from eating from that tree that God was going to give them life. But the moment, God said, the moment you eat of this tree, the bad tree, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. And so the middle of the garden, full of work, full of all this activity, was this basic question about their relationship with God. Are you going to be with me or are you not going to be with me? Are you going to believe in me or are you not going to believe me? Are you going to love me and obey me or are you going to hate me and disobey me? That's what it means to be a priest. Uh, it's to walk on the edge of life and death and to be called to choose life in relationship to God. And that was what uh, Adam and Eve were originally made to do. What do you all think about that? Um, how it dignifies work and how it also puts it in perspective to our relationship with God. Do you, think, do you have a hard time thinking of your work that way? as connected to service to God. Do you? I see a lot of nods. Why, why do you think we do? Hmm. Why? Yeah, right. The resu- he says sometimes the results don't feel eternal, so it feels sort of mundane. Corrupted with sin, yep, so we, that, that means we tend to turn our work in a different direction than this. What, what's the direction we tend to turn it towards? Define, yeah, we, instead of I made to work for God, it's I'm made to work, I, I'm made for work, you know. I, I'm made, this defines me. Um, not everybody approaches it that way, but a lot of people, if their career is their everything, it's their identity, my whole self-worth is wrapped up in it. That's one good way to not see it as a service to God. <laughs> one quick path to that. Because it will become a service to who? Me. To, you know, other, other goals and ends rather than God. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, and that might make it more challenging, right? Because usually today, not always, but a lot of times today, or it's more likely today, I'll say it this way, it's more likely today that you chose your work than it would have been 100, 200, 300, certainly 1,000, 2,000, 8,000 years ago, right? More likely that you chose it. And so that sort of puts a little bit more pressure on it. Because you had all these options and it was your job, your whole life. You were told in school, I was told in school, you got to pick the right one to make you happy, to give you a good life, right? And when you picked it, you're like, man, this is it. And then all of a sudden, after day like six at your job, you realize, man, this is not it. This is not what I thought. Maybe day one, right? Yeah, day one, you realize that. Um, Now, not everybody has the job they chose or the job that they would ideally choose, but it is more likely that you had a little bit more choice in it than, say, well, certainly than Adam did. He had zero choice. It was like his career path was locked in (laughs) as God literally took him and put him in the garden and said, work it, keep it. Um, But 
today, because of our personal or agency, you know, and our ability to choose between careers, it can put a tremendous amount of weight on uh, making the right move that suits me best, you know, all that kind of stuff. Absolutely. Um, it's wonderful to remember human dignity. This is another point to make. Human dignity does not come from our productivity. Right? Um, think about it. If you were made uh, to work for God versus if you were made t- for work, if human beings are made for work, the person who's able to be more successful, more productive, more pr- prominent in their career, they have more worth and value than the person that doesn't. Does that make sense? If that's the whole reason why you're here, then the successful ones have more value than the unsuccessful ones. But if we're made to work for God, all that kind of stuff doesn't matter as much. The person with less success, less prominence, less you know, productivity or less wealth created by their job still has a great opportunity to serve the Lord with their work, which is actually far greater than building my own reputation and my own wealth. Serving the Lord is a lot greater than that. But it's really hard to see it that way sometimes. Uh, because we're locked into this certain view of work that is really not, you know, not scriptural, not uh, based on the creation. We call it the creation mandate, the creation design of God. All right, holy place. Y'all, y'all had enough of holy place? All right, let's look at holy covenant. <clears throat> uh, God not only made a place and put man in it, but he gave to man a commandment, a commandment. Uh, You see that there in uh, verse 16 and verse 17. 16 and 17, there's a commandment. And the commandment has a lot of meaning and value behind it. And that's the reason why I use the word covenant. Uh, The Bible's full of this word covenant. Every relationship that God makes with people is described in those terms, a covenant. Uh, What is a covenant? Ryan, what's a covenant? A promise, contract, relationship between two people based on promises, based on an agreement. Um, usually you have two people and you know, one person makes a promise, the other person is, is supposed to fulfill a certain obligation in order to get the promise. You know, it's, a, so it's like a deal, basically. It's a, it's a deal that is struck between two people. It can be very personal. For example, in marriage, that's a covenant that's extremely personal and intimate. Uh, or it can be a very impersonal business transaction like when you signed your mortgage. That was also a covenant, but you're not having an intimate relationship with your loan, loan officer, probably. right? Or you shouldn't, unless they're your, you're also your spouse, which would be weird. And probably not legal, I don't know. Is that legal? Um, anyway, yeah, there are various degrees of covenant relationships, but the essence of the covenant relationship is a back and forth based on words exchanged. And so when God says to humanity, there in verse 16 and 17, uh, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Do you see how he gives them a promise and a threat, which depending on whether the person keeps the obligation depends on whether they get the promise or whether they get the threat, one or the other. It's a a test. It's a probation. 
Uh, why do you, this is a great question, why do you think God made everything depend on that one test? Eat this tree, or like, don't eat this tree. If you do, you die. If you don't, you'll live. Why, why that? Obedience matters. Obedience. It's really clear, right? Obedience matters. Uh, it's not that uh, Adam and Eve didn't have other commandments from God. We know that they did. In fact, it, he had just said, work it and keep it. That's a, those are two commandments right there. You're to work, you're to keep. But he didn't say, if you work it and keep it, you will live. If you don't work it and keep it, you'll die. No, he had it all sort of hinge on this one very simple, direct. You, I mean, there's really not any way for them to hire a lawyer and to argue themselves out of the, whether they ate the tree or whether they didn't, right? I mean, it's pretty obvious whether you eat it or whether you don't. There's no wiggle room there. There's no gray areas. They can't find loopholes uh, because God is trying to demonstrate how much he cares about his priests in his place, listening to his word and yielding their heart to his word. Uh, in a way, that's the essence of, the, of biblical Christianity. Will we listen to God or not? Will we listen to God or not? And so God boiled it down to a simple test. In fact, the, the test was so well, it should have been so easy to keep, right? I mean, what did God say after, right before he said, you may not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? What did he say? Verse 16. You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. Yeah. I mean, they had everything. They were in a garden that God himself planted. I would say he's a green thumb, right? I would say he's pretty good at it. So the garden must have been wonderful, full of all kinds of things to eat and enjoy. There was gold there. There were rivers. It was just fully well watered. They had permission to satisfy their physical needs as much as they needed to. Just don't eat this tree. Should have been easy. But again, it made it very clear that when they chose to disobey... What was happening there was not something that we or they could just excuse away. Hey, I was hungry. I was hungry. It, it's not the season for figs, so I had to eat that tree. No, everything in the garden God gave them, and he gave them permission to eat it as much as they wanted. Isn't that amazing? I think it highlights something Highlight something very important about a covenant relationship with God. Um, have you ever thought about this? A lot of people worry about, wonder about this. Is, is God about rules or is God about relationship? Yes. <laughs> right. That is correct answers. Yes, right. But oftentimes, we, even in the church, a lot of times we'll put those two against each other because we're like, hey, it's not about rules. It's not about keeping you know, checklist or rules, it's about relationship, which is true to a point. But if you're asking the question, pure and simple, is God about rules or relationship, the answer that the covenant gives us is he's really into both. Uh, in fact, uh, the only way that rules make sense is by being within a relationship, right? If he didn't have a relationship with Adam and Eve, how in the world would he be able to tell them the rule? How in the world would they be able to understand the rule was good and trustworthy? How in the world, I mean, there would be no rule to speak of if there wasn't a prior relationship. 
But at the same time, any relationship that is going to last has to have some kind of rule or boundary within it. In fact, the most lasting relationships we form with one another are the ones we surround and fill with more, the most rules. Think about the most lasting relationship that most human beings form. What is it? Marriage. That would be, that would be it. Death do us part. There's not many other relationships like that. In fact, there's none other that I know of. Um, how much legality is there involved in a marriage? Rules, laws, uh, regulations. How hard is it to get out of one? Oh, well, you know, it's less harder than it used to be, but, but it's still, you know, it's at the very least it's expensive. You know, I mean, it's not super easy, right? It takes, takes some legal uh, skill and financial backing for that legal skill to do it, right? Uh, because the, the relationships that last the most, we recognize in order, for that to be, in order for that to flourish, it's got to flourish within the boundary of promise and obligation. It's got to have a covenant structure to it. So is God about rules of relationship? Yes, he's about both. Uh, the relationship we have with God is a legal relationship, but it's also a very personal, intimate, deep relationship. It's both. And it was that way from the very beginning. With the first man that was ever made, God made this kind of relationship that valued both rules and relationships. Now, why is it? Let me ask you this. Why is it that the connection between those two things, rules and relationship, is no longer very easy for us to see or appreciate? like it was for Adam and Eve, to see it automatically and appreciate it. Why, why do we think, man, it's got to be either rules or relationship? Mm-hmm. Okay, say more. Specifically, what is it about our sin? Yeah, right. So we've seen a lot of bad examples. That have turned us off of that. Yep. We want a rule. We want a rule. Yeah, so rules. We want like yeah, rules fundamentally kind of conflict with a sinful heart. In, unless they're my rules. And then I'm good with it. If there's somebody else's rules, it's like, eh, I don't know. You know, That's, that's a little constricting. Mm-hmm. What else? Well, think of, well, when God first gave verses 16 and 17 to Adam and Eve, they heard it as innocent people. People who had never violated the rule. Right? Ever since, we've always heard God's commandments as guilty people who have violated the rules. It's very different, right? I mean, uh, if the cop pulls you over and um, you didn't just come from a bank robbery, your interaction with the cop is probably going to be slightly different than if you're coming from a bank robbery. Isn't that right? You know, all things considered, you're probably going to feel a little bit different when you see the blue lights if you're just kind of going around about your business. You may be frustrated, but you're not going to be looking for a way to run like if you're coming from robbing a bank. 
And ever since Adam and Eve, human beings are like, have robbed the bank, and we're on the run from God. And when God chases us down with rules, that, that is, it's like seeing the blue lights when we're fugitives. The law of God does not uh, set well with us until God softens our hearts and opens us to want to hear what he has to say. Until he reestablishes in our minds, hey, there is a relationship here. I love you. I forgive you. I'm willing to make peace with you. And if we can grasp that, which is given to us in the gospel, then all of a sudden the law becomes sweet again. But prior to that, the law is going to be anything but sweet. And so rules and relationship are always being sort of pitted against one another. But that wasn't the way it was in the beginning. Humanity was made for order, rules, and also intimate personal fellowship with each other and with God. Both of them were meant to be together in the Garden of Eden when man was first made. All right, now lastly tonight, let's look at holy matrimony. This is usually people's favorite part of this chapter. This is the part of the chapter that's most quoted. Uh, it's almost always read when. Mm-hmm. Just about every wedding I do, I read a portion of this chapter at some point uh, in the marriage ceremony, and rightfully so, because this is the very first marriage. You look at verse uh, 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that, man, that the man should be alone. Um, do you notice something there? It is not good. Remember Genesis 1? It is good. It is good. It is good. It is good. It is very good. And then all of a sudden, for the first time, God says, It's not good. But at this point, he's not saying it about sin. He's just saying it about lack. The man needs something that he doesn't have without the woman. And so the story of the making of man and woman is, is here being described in a very different way than it was in chapter 1, where God said, hey, let there, basically, let there be man in our image. And God, it says God made them male and female. Boom. Almost like he just did it. Uh, here he shows, I think, for the purpose of reminding us that the male-female difference and the relationships and the life that's able to be carried on because of the male-female difference is for humanity very different than it is for the other animals. Uh, everything is male and female, usually. Everything that reproduces has a male and a female. Everybody agree so far? Even plants. You learn about it in school. You got the male and the female and most plants and they, crawl, they pollinate and all that and they have more plants. But here he's saying God didn't make man, male and female just like he did the goats and the, you know, and the sunflowers and all the rest. For God, the male and female in humanity had a special elevated dignity. It wasn't just physical reproduction that was in view. It was something far more sacred. The theme of the chapter is the sanctity of human life, the sacredness. And here, even the, the gender difference and the marriages that get built on the basis of that gender difference and the children that get brought into the world because of that gender difference, all those things are like blessed by God with extra um, dignity and worth than just the reproduction of cows and other things. It's an, it's an amazing thing. And so read on. It's not good that man should be alone. I'll make a helper fit for him. A helper fit for him. Uh, another way to, to translate it, a helper corresponding to him. Meaning, she will be different than him, but also the same as him. That's what corresponding means. 
the same, therefore they're able to be one and relate, but different, therefore they're able to complement. The word helper sometimes trips people up. Uh, Is this saying that, you know, women are just, you know, the waitresses of men? (laughs) You know, is that what this is talking about? Helper, like waiting hand and foot upon men? Uh, No, actually, do you know where, you know how often the word helper is used to describe God in the Bible? A ton of times. Uh, Remember uh, in, in the New Testament, for example, Jesus said, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. The helper will come to you. Same word. Um, In the Old Testament, God described himself as the helper of his people. Same word. Uh, So helper is not about lesser. It's not about, you know, even it really isn't even about subordinate so much as it is about um, the ability to complement, fill out the lack of what was not there in the man. And vice versa. There's the ability of the man to fill out anything that might be lacking within the woman. Uh, There's a mutual compatibility is really what this is saying. But the mutual compatibility depends upon the difference. And and so um, if our culture says equality, equality between the sexes must mean that the difference between the sexes is erased... They're missing a key part about the equality of the sexes. Because the equality of the genders, the equality of man and woman, depends upon the difference between man and woman. Precisely that. If if woman was exactly the same as man, why would God say, it is not good for man to be alone, let me create a woman? He would have just made another man. Boom. And it would have been all good. He He made a woman different but corresponding, a helper, someone who has a great, very high calling in the world, uh, just on the model of God's Holy Spirit, who is the helper of God's people. Or, as the New Testament says, Jesus is the head of the church, as the the husband is the head of the, the wife, and he loves her and washes her and presents her a spotless bride for the Lord. And, the, one, and the, the church, it submits to Christ even as the wife is called in this sense to submit to the husband. There's a beauty to the difference between men and women, which actually is what gives rise to the equality between men and women, not uh, what so many think that equality must mean differences are erased. Uh, the Bible says, Viva la différence. Long live the difference between men and women. What do you think about that? Agree? Disagree? I know there might be some pushback on it. It's 2022, right? Lots of pushback on these things. And I know that these things must sound old-fashioned to a lot of people, but what do you think? Right. Yep. Well, there's a design. Yeah, I think it. it's really, to me, it just gives me a lot of, Dignity and clarity to know that the way life goes is not just random. It's not just picked by people. It's not one culture decides to do something one way, and next culture decides to do it another way. Next culture. Yeah, there's a reason why across cultures, there's been little differences in this matter, but for the most part, all cultures have recognized there are men, there are women, and there's a reason for that. <laughs> and it's a really important reason. And actually, it's literally what makes the world go round. 
Uh, literally every single one of us in the room came from a man and a woman. All right? Yeah, that's pretty obvious, you know, and, and that's, there's never been a human being that came any other way besides Adam and Jesus. Right? Yeah, you got to have male and female, right? You have a mom and a dad. That's the way God designed for it to be. Now, let's read on. Uh, the, um, God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens. So what happens next is uh, Moses relates how when Adam was naming the animals, during that process, God was also uh, trying to teach man what he already knew. Uh, he already knew it wasn't good for the man to be alone, that he needed the woman, but he was putting Adam through a, through a situation. He was making him do his work without the woman uh, so that he would also come to the same conclusion. I, it is not good. I, I'm, out, I'm, I'm lonely, and um, I'm missing something. And so it says, God brought to him every beast of the field, and he named them, and whatever he called them, that was its name. Verse 20 um, but for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. Still, after all that work, he was like, I'm still lonely. I still am missing something. And so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of the ribs and closed up the place with flesh. And then out of the rib, he made the woman. And he presented the woman to the man. And uh, therefore, that's why a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were naked but not ashamed. Beautiful picture of the very first marriage. Go back down there with mom real quick, bud, while I finish up. Uh, beautiful picture of the first marriage uh, between Adam and Eve, uh, based upon the, the difference that God had made between the man and the woman, based upon that, it was a corresponding difference. Uh, what one was lacking was filled in by the other. What the other was lacking was filled in by the first. Uh, man and woman. We have so much more to say about it next week. Maybe I'll continue to say about it more because uh, there might not, I mean, I'll say that there might not be a more controversial place in the Bible right now than that last part. And there are many more reasons why it's controversial, so I'll, I'll chase that down a little bit next week. Or, or not next week, the week after next, because we're doing Renew Polk Prayer Night next week. So on the 13th of February, we'll chase down some of these uh, gender issues, issues of human sexuality and all the rest.